What progress we are making, said Sigmund Freud. In the Middle Ages, they would have burned me. Now they're content with burning my books. Well, Freud's thought still poses some burning questions. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Don't touch that dial. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming with a taste of live. It's Mike Foyer's favorite, taken from my live class. And if you like what you hear, take the time to go to jewishstory.co and scroll down to see Access Jewish Story Live. Join this year's live class starting on Sunday, August 28th, or send me an email at robmikefoyer at gmail.com. Happy to share you with the details. Meanwhile, enjoy the next episode of Setting the Stage for the Middle Age. I just want to say thank you, as always, to the Pardes Institute for helping to make this class happen. That's P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L. Check it out for more great stuff. Okay, everybody. Good morning. Um, now we're back off the virtual world into the real one. Um, so this is what I would like to do today. In, in my mind, um, we're at the stage of what I think of um, as setting the stage for the Middle Age, right? Not personally speaking, but... Nastily speaking, I'm feeling a little sensitive on that topic right now. Let's not go there. Um, but what we need to do is I want to just briefly um, recapitulate the nature of text and, and make sure we're clear on the evolution of text and what that has meant for Am Yisrael over the last several hundred years. Because going forward, you know, a, you know, it's a cliche at this point to call the Jews the people of the book. It's really just a question of which one, right? And, and as we'll see when we get deep into the Middle Ages, It'll take the church a while to catch up that the answer is not the Torah or the Bible, right? That the answer is really the Gemara. And just as a teaser for what's down the line, when the church wakes up to that is when all hell is going to break loose. Um, but for now, they don't know, so we're fine. Um, so we're going to do that, and we need to speak about a little bit of the sociopolitical context uh, in Rome and what's happening in the Roman Empire, because that's going to play a very important role in setting the stages for the emergence of modern Europe. And in many ways, when we get to it, the making of the Jew, in my eyes, is bound up with the creation of Europe as a whole. Right? The Jew is a very specific sociological product, which emerges out of Am Yisrael and the Torah and our history. And it's not for naught that when does the Jew, when do they attempt to unmake the Jew in Europe? Around about 1942. Right? When, when Europe, as it had been conceived, also falls apart. The two go hand in hand. And if you stick it out for long enough, we'll get to talk about that here. But for now, we're, we're still in about the 5th century. So that's one piece. We're going to look at the text. We have to talk about the evolution of Rome. But really, everybody knows what we've been trying to get to because I've been saying it over and over again for the last three classes. What do we have to talk about today? Finally going to talk about Christianity, right? So I'm going to ask you all to turn off your cell phones right now. No recording devices and anything I can say can and will be used against me, I'm sure, somewhere or other. Okay. So first things first, let's talk about text. You know, and I think we've mentioned that this, the idea of the Torah has a few possible definitions. I'm not going to go into them all now, but it's worth it just to touch on, touch on again. When I say Torah, what do most people picture? The, the actual scrolls, the Etzchayim, and, the, and the, like it's a physical, the five books of Moses. And we have an unanswered question between the traditional narrative and the sort of historical critical narrative. Where did that come from? Right? Am Yisrael says, Moshe got it at Sinai. The academic sort of historical world says, I'm not buying that story. Right? And it brings to bear all kinds of tools to deconstruct that notion. 
It's not so critical to me now which one is true. You can choose your own. If you want to talk to me about it later, maybe you'll manage to get a straight answer out of me. But for now, Am Yisrael believes that the Torah came to them from Sinai. And that's all that matters for our story. You understand? I call this the internal narrative perspective. Never fall prey to what we call presentism in history. The way that we see the world today is not how people in late antiquity saw the world. So whatever academic discussions that we have about um, text and authority and all, which are important, um, were largely unavailable. Except we know that around about the third century before the Common Era, there emerges this notion in the discourse. Now remember I say emerges because we actually have record of it. How long the Jews were arguing about this is, is up to you. But the idea that there is something called the traditions of the fathers, that there is a parallel oral tradition, which is equal in both authority and integrity to the text of the Torah, emerges in the historical record. Right? You have a group who will be called various things, ultimately the Pharisees and then the sages, who are saying now, equal in authority and integrity, those are two different but very important related ideas. Authority means what? Well, if it says in the book of Moses, don't cook a calf in its mother's milk, and it says in the tradition of the fathers that that means you can't have chicken parmesan, right? then those are equally authoritative. Integrity means, and just like Moses got the Torah from God, so too we got that instruction from God. Now, what's the difference? Is the integrity of the Torah is dependent on what? The written Torah is dependent on what? Right, the text. And that's why there's so much argument about, you know, biblical critical high criticism. Can we use literary tools to deconstruct the origin of the text? Because if you can deconstruct the origin of the text, then the story of its authority begins to falter in some people's eyes. Now, what does the authority and integrity of the, the tradition of the fathers depend on? Yes, it depends on the people. A group of people who are able to claim, we know this, why? Why is it called the traditions of the fathers? Because where did you learn it from? From the father, who learned it from his father, who learned it from Moshe at Sinai. There's a very strong argument because it locates authority and integrity in a social process as opposed to a mechanical one. You understand what I mean? The mechanical process of, of so fruit, of transcribing a text over time took a whole professional class. And I'll just keep pointing you back to Ezra, who was the origin in our text of that class. Doesn't mean he was the first scribe, but when Ezra is described as Sofer Mahir Betorat Moshe, it is not an accident. Right? Because he is the one who is the ready scribe in the Torah of Moshe, who, who creates not only the institution of scribes within the Second Temple period, but also elevates the public reading of the text, as the Gemara itself points out, to an act, a religious act. So, however, there are going to be a group of people who say, this is the way we've done it because it's how we've always done it since Moshe, and the proof for that is the fact that we're still doing it now. And that oral tradition, we're not going to recapitulate the whole class up to now, but you recall, particularly in Hanukkah's coming up, becomes really a source of challenge during the Hanukkah period. Right, in, the, in the struggle with the Greeks, and most importantly, the inner struggle. Never forget that Hanukkah is a civil war before the Greeks ever get involved. The inner struggle between the Hellenists and the anti-Hellenist camp and clarifying who is a Jew, which is really the first generation that that question became pressing. Right? What emerges at the end of the Second Temple period is a group of people that we call the sages, the Tanaim, the masters of the Mishnah. Remember, in, when the Second Temple stood all the way through 
So about 100 years after its destruction, they were not writing down their opinions. Because anything important enough to remember, you would never write it down. Lest you forget it. Right? They were living it, and these were parallel lived traditions, which, as we pointed out, in the second century, more or less, you know, call it 200 if we want a round number, that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi redacts the Mishnah. And remember, the difference between redaction and editing is that redaction is on the presumption that there are multiple texts. And what he's trying to do is reconcile, reconcile sorry, parallel lived traditions in order that, I'll just keep using the same example, that in his time, if you went to the town of Rabbi Yossi Galilee, and they were eating chicken parmesan, you would say no thank you, but you would know they were Jews because they were the students of Rabbi Yossi Galilee. If you happen to meet these same people or their students in Italy, and they offered you chicken parmesan, you would say, you're not Jews, I'm out of here. And that's exactly what Rebbe was, one of the things that Rebbe was looking to avoid. And so the Mishnah preserves this sense of a multiple voice conversation, but creates this portable homeland, this unified existence through the emphasis on law, right, which launches that whole project, which I define as the real goal of rabbinic Judaism, which is a one-to-one identification between law and identity, right? So the, the Mishnah is more or less finished, along with the Tosefta and everything else we spoke about, um, mid-2nd century, well, actually, that would be mid-3rd century, um, the, you know, around 200, 250. And the Gemara begins when? Really right away. We had a source that we looked at that points out that in the days of Rebbe, meaning Rebbe Yudha Nasi, the redactor of the Mishnah, people focused on Gemara. Meaning what? Gemara is not a text, it's a method. Right? And, and that's the thing to not, do not forget. When you read the Gemara, it's often people miss. They were not having a textual discussion. They were having a conversation of meaning, which was, which was crafted into a text. But the people in the conversation itself rarely show the awareness that they're part of a, 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 a canonical text. The evidence is if they did, there are probably a lot of things that the Gemara says that never would have gotten written down. Or at least not said. I don't know if you know, but the Gemara is not shy to um, talk about touchy subjects, to make all kinds of mistakes and say wacky things, right? Um, and, and so therefore, there's an argument to be made that this was a conversation which, as we spoke about over time, became a text. We spoke about Abayin Rava and the influx of the Omoraim from Eretz Israel and how there were the sugyot began to emerge, how like if you've had a friend for more than 20 years, you've been having the same conversations and it becomes building blocks for deeper understanding, right? <laughs> Aside from the fact that nobody remembers what we were talking about last week, right? Um, the, and, and out of this emerges the Gemara. We spoke about the, the fact that um, in, in the land of Israel, right, that, that the um, Yushalmi, or as it's known in English, the Palestinian Gemara, um, the Yushalmi ends its editing in approximately 400 or 425 is a good round number. Why is 425? It's a bit of a review. It's a quiz. Why 425? What happened in 425? You also have the, the time. Well, the empire split before that. And we're going to get to that. But what happened in 425? It's, it's got to do with the evidence for it. It has to do with Rome. The last evidence we have of the existence of the Sanhedrin is that it's actually in 426. I might have thrown you off. Um, the, the one version of the Theodosian Code sh- shifts the text given to the patriarchate, right? the big Jew, in Eretz Israel, which at this point we said is probably lost its authority as an ultimate legal body, but still serves as the ultimate political body of the Jews. And the tax paid for the support of the patriarchate is not, of course, a 
you know, absolved because nobody ever gets rid of taxes, but rather its revenue stream is directed directly to the emperor. And so there, that seems to be the end of the institution, which was once the Sanhedrin. And, and what we were speaking about is the fact that because of the social conditions within Eretz Yisrael, that the Rushalmi does not receive the level of editing and, and sort of refinement that the Bavli does, which is why, if you ever learn it, it seems to be filled with lacunae. It's, you know, there's like all kinds of jumps that the Rishalmi makes that makes it extremely difficult to learn, um, which the Bavli fills in sometimes with labyrinthian thought, but it does fill in, right? So, so the Rishalmi will basically sit on the back burner for most of Jewish intellectual history. Many Rishonim, the, the Rambam probably most notably, took the Rishalmi to be definitive when, and, and the, the Tosfists also, um, the, but nevertheless, it does not become the same sort of central text that the Bavli does for two reasons. One, the camera's shifting away from Eretz Israel. Right? Since the time of Ezra and the Shivat Zion, the return from Zion, the camera's been there, even though the population centers were still in Bavel. But now the camera's finally definitively shifting to Bavel. And therefore, the Babylonian Talmud will become the primary source of what I call the cultural matrix, law and narrative. That's what a cultural matrix is. Law and narrative together. And from that, like I said, you take the Gemara, you drop it down, you add water, poof, you got the juice. So, the, the actually, I called it Gemara, right? I should say Bavli, just to be honest. So, we, we, this is kind of where we left off in the time period in, in the story of our text, is that the, the, the Bavli receives this last layer um, of editing, right? We spoke about how Rav Ashi and Ravena Probably you're somewhere between 425 and 500 were Sof Hora'ah, right? And we spoke about it. Sof Hora'ah can mean two things, at least in the Rishonim, between Rashi and, and Rav Shurigon. Anybody remember what they were? One was, was the, Rashi says that they were the ones who ordered the Gemara. I mean, gave it like the structure, the full structure of the Sugyot and, and together with the Mishnah and the Masechtot and all these things. Rav Shurigon was more interested in the, the language of Hora'ah being definitive law. And, and the Rambam backed that up. He said that the closing of the Gemara was the closing of an era that there was a central court which could make its judgments binding on all of Am Yisrael. And I pointed out to you guys that this is very important because now, if you accept that, anything with his, which is in the Gemara is what the Jews do. And if you don't do it, then ipso facto, you're not a Jew. Meaning, obviously, it's not so simplistic, but we will see when we get to the Gaonic period and the rise of the Karite schism that that is exactly how it functions. That the Gemara becomes definitive of Jewish identity. Right? So this last phase of editing that the Bavli gets after Sof Hora'ah, it comes at the hands of the Savoraim. Right? The Savoraim are a little bit elusive in the historical record, um, but it seems that they serve two purposes. If you've, if you've um, spent a lot of time with the Bavli, then you're familiar with what's called the Stama Gemara. The, the, the voice of the Gemara, which doesn't have identification, it have names, and it, doesn't, and it often will bring conclusions at the end of Sugyot or fill in the sort of um, literary flow that the Yushalmi is lacking that allows you to, to some degree, follow its, its arguments. So one element of the Savoraim is that voice of the Stama. And it seems that they continue to function like the Amoraim. Sometimes they will be machria baya meaning they will actually come to a conclusion that the earlier Moraim had either avoided or the conversation had been cut off. So they still do serve a little bit in this definitive sense, but, but mostly it seems, at least from uh, Professor Halivni uh, uh, here, that, um, that 
what they did was they gave the Gemara the, uh, the recognizable structure. They began to pull the little pieces out of the Mishnah, which if you're familiar with learning Gemara, is a huge assistance in learning the flow of the Gemara, that if I put a little snippet of the Mishnah, which was not part of the original text of the Gemara, nor was the combination of printing the Mishnah and the Gemara together with the original text. But, but once I put a little snippet, it's like a headline, and everybody knows. If you know what the headline is, the story makes a lot more sense. Right? Um, so, so this type of editing is another capacity that the Sephoraim brought to the text. And what emerges from this at the end is the question that we keep coming back to is, was it written down? And all I can tell you is it's a machok of the historian. Right? There, there, are, there are a strong camp of historians who believe that the last generation of the Sephoraim were the first ones to actually write down the, um, the uh, actually, actually I have notes, I have in my notes the first generation of the Sephoraim, I, I apologize. I thought it was the last. Um, and yet there are other historians who will claim that all the way through the Onic period, the Gemara was not written down, that it was an oral text. And just to remind you why that's important, and then we'll, we'll be done with this little review, um, is because, remember, if I asked you to copy this piece of paper, you would take it up to the copy machine or you'd take a photograph of it with your phone. Our relationship to text is one of absolute integrity. Whereas oral text, the primary goal is meaning. Right? And anybody who's learned enough Gemara knows that what the Gemara means is not always so clear. Right? And so therefore, the human mind has a tremendous capacity to rearrange syntax in order to be reflective of meaning. Right? You cannot separate the two in language. Right? You could take all the words in the sentence I just made, assuming that it made sense to you when I said it, right? and rearrange them, and all the right words will be there, right? But the meaning is totally lost. At the same time, I'll tell you a good joke. You guys know the joke about the panda bear? The panda bear. Oh, this will illustrate my point perfectly. Panda bear walks into a restaurant, orders a meal, sits down, starts to eat. It's a panda bear, so it takes him a while. Big meal. Finishes, wipes his mouth, stands up, pulls two 9mm pistols out of his pocket, and starts to unload on the crowd. Chaos. Smoke. Noise. Blood. People are screaming. And he gets up and he heads for the door. The manager is cowering behind the counter. He doesn't know what to do. He just calls out, oh, why'd you do it? Panda bear says, I'm a panda bear. He says, what? What does that mean? He pulls a beaten copy of the OED out of his pocket, and he tosses it over the counter and says, look it up. Walks out the door. Managers know what to do. He hears the ambulance coming. He's not going to get out from behind the counter. He starts to flip through the dictionary. Panda bear, panda bear, panda bear, panda bear. Eats, shoots, and leaves. <laughs> right? So, meaning, the, the problem with meaning and syntax is that you drop a comma into the sentence and the entire meaning can shift. So therefore, an oral text, the challenge is, is that once it's committed to writing, you have to ask yourself, where does that comma go? Which is, of course, you know, in, in Hebrew, you can avoid the problem to some degree because there's no punctuation or vocalization in the in the text. Nevertheless, when we get to the Masoretes in the, in the nature of the written text, we'll see that this, this issue does not go away. So anyway, now you have a good joke. It's the Panda Bear joke. You can take it with you for the day. The rough days of the Savoraim are between five and 600. And it's really rough, because where the, the Gonim begin and the Savoraim end off, even in the Rishonim, you can find a few places, that, at least that I'm familiar with, in the Ritva, where he's like, no, the Gonim put that into the Gemara, which is a racy statement. There's two halves of the statement. How does one see it as memorized at all? And then there's the question without change, massive changes. So the first of all, memorize it all, um, the human mind has that capacity. We know this. Um, 
I mean, as a, a, a silly example, how many used to have more than a dozen phone numbers memorized? Two dozen phone numbers. Phone numbers, sure. We all grew up and it was just phone numbers. That's how you knew them, right? How many of you have more than three memorized right now? <laughs> right? So, like, the, the, the mind is, is responsive to its environment of information. It's astounding, and it's not to be taken lightly. The other question, I think, is more pressing, which is without change. Now, now, the answer there goes back to my point, which is that, first of all, the Gemara itself shows that there's, there's lots of problematics in the text. I mean, how often does the Gemara say, ah, stay a moriah, liba de, 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 you know, uh, I, can't, I forget the phrase, but two students according to their teacher, meaning you have competing versions of Rav Chizda said. So one of the ways the Gemara will often resolve that is, yeah, Rav Chizda said something. We don't know what he said. We know his two students argue about what it was. They were sitting in the room together. So the Gemara recognizes the problematics of that, but in the end of the day, meaning trumps syntax. So what will happen is since the Gemara is a constant conversation, even when it's an oral text, we're having a conversation about the text and we're trying to get at its meaning, that itself will ensure that even if the syntax drifts, we believe that the, the, um, the point is still coming across. The big question there is who's the we? Right? Who is the we who says we believe? And furthermore, if you've ever, it comes, it's very, I always find it fascinating in the later halachic discourse. People like the, like the Taz loves to do it, if people are familiar with the Taz. Says, he looks at the, at the text he's looking at and he says, Taut Sofrim Khan. Like, there's a scribal error here. Why is the Taz in, in the 17th century willing to look at these texts and say, there's a scribal error here? What's driving him? It doesn't, it's, not more, it's more that he doesn't agree with it. It doesn't make sense in his eyes when you read it that way. So he's bashing it. And by the way, why do I say it's more? Because there are times when the cause will say, I don't agree. You're just wrong. Right? But what will push him to say it must be? It's because in his mind, there is no way he is absolutely clear on meaning. Syntax does not reflect. And therefore, when forced to do one or the other, he will change syntax in the face of meaning because he recognizes the fact that, that textual integrity is, is uh, an important myth. But it's a myth, except within the realm of the text of the Torah, where we created an entire professional class. And that's the benefit, of course, that the written text offers over the oral text, is that you can line the two up and say, does yours match mine? And even there, we know there are challenges. So that's what I would say is, in the end, the question is, do the arguments and their conclusions stay with integrity? Not necessarily the, uh, the nusach, the phraseology. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a big challenge. And we see you know, the... Um, Last piece on this, because it's a big polemic today. Right? There are the whole Kitve Yad world today of, of pulling handwritten manuscripts out to demonstrate that, that you know, because the Gemara is not just a storybook, it's a law book. So therefore, if there's a change in text, it can have implications in practice, right? which might come to challenges in values. Right? So therefore, we get a little edgy when you start pulling out old text saying, I won't tell you the other joke, because that's too much in one day, um, about the Rambam. Right, yeah, you can call me on it later. Um, but, but what if I discover that an entire sort of path of, of legal discourse struggling to understand some particular point of practice is the result of a mistake in text? What do I do with that? Right? Like, like one, one of the places that the, um, the, the, in the halakhic literature where it's uh, fairly familiar to me is when the Shulchan Aruch, when Rav Yosef Karo says that it's forbidden to mix milk and cheese. Milk and, uh, sorry, milk and, uh, milk and fish and milk. And the citation he gives you sends you back to a citation which is about fish and meat. And so the, the Ashkenazim, the Shach and the Taz, if you're familiar with them, say, Taut Sofrim, he just made a mistake. Okay, it happens. 
But there are, the, in the Sephardi camp, you know, I don't know if people know, but there are many groups of Sephardi who don't eat fish and milk together. Who knew there are Jews who don't eat lox and bagels? I, I have had that mistake. It only, you only have to make it once when you, when you invite a Sephardi family over and offer them, like, salmon in Alfredo sauce, and they're like, what is that? Um, okay. Anyway, it matters because the, the, this is the world within which the Jews are developing separate from Christianity. This is the vessel within which Am Yisrael is developing because we are a people now officially without a land. And, and that the, the, the temple is gone. The structures of national government are gone. The social structure of the Kehila we've mentioned, right, centering around the Beit Knesset and the authority figure of the sage, the rabbi. And we didn't speak so much about it, but the real social organizing power of the Beit Din, of the court. And all of the, you know, the, the, the ritual bath, the, the, the ritual circumciser, the ritual slaughter, all the social functions will become a unit that can then be, market is the wrong word, franchised. It's, it can be franchised around the world. And notice, all those things are dependent upon knowledge. To build a mikvah properly, to be a proper moel, to be a proper shochet, these things are, are an, an elite there of knowledge. And that, of course, is going to be rooted back here, now you can picture why Middle, Age, Middle, Middle Ages jury develops the way it does. Okay, that's it. I've been warned. Um, so what's happening in Rome in, in the socio-political context when this is going on? Well, remembering that you know, the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in 70 CE, and we talked about the three Roman wars. I'm not going to go through it. Right? But remembering that the three Roman Jewish wars are taking place during this period known as the Pax Romana that the rest of the, the Mediterranean basin has been beaten into submission and now accepts the fact that it's better to have roads and sanitation than it is to have the legions pillaging your village. So therefore, we're just going to pay our taxes or tribute and, and be quiet, except for the Jews. And I leave it to you why that is, and we'll come back to it a bit in the Christian era. Right? Um, however, in the mid-third century, we mentioned already this idea that the, third, the crisis of the third century begins. Um, Basically, there's two problems. Number one is that the legions come to realize that they are the real power within Rome. If you know a little bit about how Rome was set up, the legions were on the frontiers, primarily. They were camped out in what were known as the limes. They were like these defensive lines to the east against Parthia, which had a lot of its roots here in the land of Israel, which is one of the reasons that what is basically a backwater, culturally speaking, in the Roman provinces was militarily and politically very important because this was the frontier with Parthia. The other one, depending on the year, was up in Gaul. Call it Germany, France, depends on, on where exactly they were. But the bulk of the legions were out defending. However, they were a tremendous source of power. And for whatever reason, we're not going to go into now, mid-third century, these legions began to realize that they could declare their own general's emperor, march on Rome, and make big money. The only problem was is that the other legions could do the same thing. And so that you end up in a 50-year period, according to my notes, at least 26 claimants to the title of emperor, most of whom were prominent generals, because you have an instant power base. Um, at the same time, toward the mid-third century, northern Europe starts to boil over with humanity. To this day, historians have no good reason of why it happened, when it happened, but what becomes known as the Germanic tribes Right, these, the barbarians, if you're familiar with Roman history, who, who begin to literally pour out of nor northern Europe and rain down on the western side of the Roman Empire like a typhoon. It's a human flood. 
not to be stopped. And the Romans are basically blindsided by it because their focus was on Parthia. Their focus was on the other real organized empire to the east that served as a true threat in their mind. They were not looking for barbarian hordes. You're never looking for barbarian hordes, but they certainly weren't. Um, right, yes, yeah, keep that one in mind. You should be looking. Um, the, so, so what happens is, is that this leads to these two circumstances, the sort of um, military political instability and the sort of the beginning of the, of the, um, the barbarian hordes, right, beating back what's known as the limes, this, this line of, of security that the legions held causes a collapse of the Roman Empire in the 3rd century. It actually splits into three entities, what's known as the Gallic Empire to the west, um, the Palmyra Empire to the east. Palmyra, this beautiful city that was destroyed by ISIS, I don't know, six months ago, whenever it was, was the heart of one-third of the Roman Empire. It wasn't just some nice oasis town. And then the true Roman Empire based in Rome in the middle. Um, it remains that way for a number of decades. Eventually, toward the late 3rd century, it's reunited um, under Aurelian, um, puts the frontier, frontier troops back into place, sort of like locks things down, but Rome never really recovers. This is an important thing to know, is that, is that dozens and dozens of major cities, especially in the Western Empire, were destroyed, never to be rebuilt. The way that they stopped this barbarian invasion was co-opting, not by defeating them. Meaning, at first they ceded lands to them, and then they began to cede lands to them as, um, as a technical term for it in, in Latin. I forget what it is. But basically as military colonies, in the same way that many of the legions were sent out, and at the end of their service they would be allowed to marry, because it was forbidden to marry when you were a legionnaire, they would be allowed to marry and take land where they were, and essentially became military colonies. So what they did was they basically paid off these barbarians, co-opted them into the legions, allowed them legal possession of the land which the Romans couldn't take back anyway. So from there it's a very quick route to powerful legionnaires who have groups of their tribal members who are now all soldiers. Now what happened, we already said the legions are the major source of, of, of the empire and there will be a very quick route for, for a barbarian empire to be on the horizon. Which if you look in Roman history, this indeed does happen um, within about 150 years, which may not sound so fast, but considering the arc of the Roman Empire, it was pretty quick. Um, this is going to matter for a number of reasons that, again, we're setting the stage for the Middle Age, right? So, so it matters for a couple of reasons. First of all, the two, let's call it two factors, just so you can hold the information. Latifundia and, and, and the, the rise of the heroic culture. What do I mean? Latifundia is the concentration of land into, into a small number of hands, meaning what emerges out of this are these vast estates, right? What we would today call counties if you're from the state, from America. Of course, why is it called a county? Who rules a county? A count, right? Meaning, meaning the, these, what, what comes as opposed to the Roman model of citizenship, where, where the estate is the unit of sort of social and agricultural measure, and the vision is a self-sustaining estate which grows its own olives and its own, you know, presses its own grapes for wine and its own wheat, etc. These are these estates begin to grow into what today would look like countries. And therefore the vast majority of people living around there lose their land possession. Usually it's just taken from them without rights. And this is what's called latifundia. It's a technical term which by the way happens all over the world. It's all over the world, it's not just the Romans. 
But why it matters for us now is, is again, two reasons. Number one is it creates a new class of people in the Roman Empire known as the Colonni. They are semi-free, meaning they're technically free people. They can enter into financial contracts. They can marry, right? But they're bound to their land. If I buy the land that you live on, you come with it. These are the people who will become the serfs of European history, if you're familiar with serfdom and, and the birth of, of the Middle Ages and feudal Europe. That begins through the concentration of land, which is a response to the retreat of the Roman Empire culturally in the face of the advance of the Germanic tribes. Together with that comes the rise of the heroic culture. The model of Roman culture is a, a political model of citizenship. The emperor down to the last day never really called himself king. The truth is it would have been better for the Roman Empire in many ways if he had, because a king at least is able to wield undisputed power. But the, the sense of a, a first amongst equals never really leaves Rome until perhaps the very end. Right? And, and so therefore, the model of citizenship is that, was that everybody could be king. Well, that may sound nice in a democracy, but you know what it meant in the Roman Empire? Everybody tried. Right? And, and so what it led to, there was, there was no continuity. Just because the emperor was a good emperor doesn't mean that their son is going to even inherit, much less because it's not necessarily a hereditary function. Furthermore, everybody can what's called aspire to the purple. Germanic culture that was invading from the West right, is a culture where, in classic German culture, the royal families of the tribes were descended from the gods. Right? These, were, these were the superhuman, the heroic culture. So that lent a tremendous power to the leadership model. I mean, when you're descended from the gods, nobody messes with you, right? And, you know, because it was a warrior culture, how did they express their descent from the gods? By killing everybody that disputed them, right? Um, that's going to have a tremendous impact. So when you combine these two, you know what you see emerging already? Is the feudal states of Europe with absolute divine right monarchs and the serfs on the bottom. Right, so I just want you to appreciate this is the arc because the real question, this is the Jewish story after all, is, is it good news for the Jews? Right? And, and that will remain to be seen. But I want you to understand that this is what's happening in Rome, certainly to the West. In the East, the Roman Empire maintains more of its integrity, and we'll tell that story now. But before I do, and that story's bound up with Christianity, the slaves will maintain their role. The slaves are below the colony. That's the difference. Is the, slaves, the problem with slavery is, is that despite the sort of cinematographic appeal, economically speaking, slavery is rarely um, useful right? in, a long, in a long run. And slavery is useful when, like when they conquered Jerusalem and the cost of a slave in the markets in Rome was less than the cost of a horse. So then, okay, so I'll buy 100 slaves and work them to death and it's worth it to me. But when, as soon as, as um, sort of labor becomes expensive, and you have to maintain a slave and feed them and house them, et cetera, it becomes less and less worthwhile. But they're there. It's still a slave culture, for sure. Other questions, comments? Okay, Christianity. So because, now, in order to talk about Christianity, we need to do a little bit of the backstory. Once upon a time, right? No, so it, the thing to, to remember in the, in the true backstory is that the roots of Christianity are in the Beit Midrash. Right? That, that, that many of the early Christians, certainly according to both the Christian tradition and the Jewish tradition, Jesus of Nazareth was a student of the rabbis. Right? And so therefore it's very worthwhile and interesting to read in particular the Pauline scriptures as an intra-Jewish polemic. You understand what I'm saying? 
is that, you know, take that classic statement that it's not what goes into your mouth, but what comes out of it that defines whether you're holy. I think that you could get a lot of traction on that if you put a bunch of Jews in a room together today of different denominations and had them argue about that. You'd probably get some interesting responses, right? Is it kashrut or is it derech eretz? Right? What goes into your mouth, what matters, or is what comes out? I mean, the answer is obviously both. But nevertheless, you can understand that it reflects real tensions within a, a purely intra-Jewish discussion. Many of the questions of early Christianity, or sorry, of apostolic Christianity, and apostolic Christianity basically goes from the year zero, if, as it were, to the year 100, meaning it's the area of Christianity which was led by the people who actually knew Jesus of Nazareth in the flesh, as it were. Leaving aside the question of if, when, how he existed, just going with the Christian traditional narrative, and the Jewish one as well, by the way, that he did exist, right? Although we spoke about last year, perhaps there's questions when. That era actually ends with Paul. Because Paul never knew Jesus of Nazareth. His conversion on the road to Damascus is a spiritual conversion, which as we spoke about last year, gives the Pauline scriptures and his whole approach to Christianity its importance. Now, this review matters to us. Why? Because what did Paul say? You guys remember we had this discussion last year, those of you who were there, the argument between Paul, Peter, and Simon? And since Paul's whole theology is that the spirit trumps the flesh, it means that his revelation was more true. Right? You knew the guy, I knew the God, says Paul. Right? And, and that theme will carry forward into what becomes patristic Christianity, right? Petrus is a father in Greek. Patristic Christianity are the early church fathers. Depending on where you map it, it's basically from the second century, perhaps all the way through the fifth or the ninth. Depends on how you break up. It's not really so important to us. But what you need to understand is that the period of patristic Christianity matters for us because what used to be an intra-Jewish struggle becomes contra-Jewish. Contra-Judeus, as they call it. Right? What do you mean? is that most of the Christians from the first century onwards were never Jews. There will be Jewish Christians, so we'll speak about it a little bit, all the way up to today, actually. Um, but, but as a significant element in, in, in Near Eastern Christianity, all the way for sure through the 4th, 5th century. Right? People who were practicing Jews, as we would call them, who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, and therefore they had certain obligations in that. But they were practicing halakhic Jews, as we'd say. Right? Um, but most of the Christians came from where? The, the pagan world. I mean, it wasn't specifically Rome, because actually, you know, the heart of Christianity is here in the Near East. Rome only is just a bishopric until we get to that part of the story later. Um, but, you know, the, the primary seats of Christianity at the time were Antioch. Um, here, actually, in, in, in Eretz Israel, was, had some significant in Beit Lechem and other places. Um, also down in Egypt, the Armenian church held a very important place in, their, in early Christianity. Um, but for our purposes, what happened is as the pagans began to adopt Christianity, the best accusation and, and, and the, the sort of vehement, vicious discourse about who was the true Christian, you know what the, what the knockdown card argument was in your, against your opponent? Two former pagans who have their own version of Christianity, face off. These things are often written polemics, but also face-to-face, -face, right? My trump card, if I'm allowed to use that term anymore, from knocking my opponent out of the rink is what? You're a Jew! That's right. That's it. You're done. If I can make you out to be a Jew, 
then, then that's it. We can wash our hands of you because, as we'll see in a second, there are two very strong streams within early Christianity who see the Jews not as their sort of holy forebearers, but as the failed experiment which needs to be rejected and left behind in history. So now this is going to have a lot of implications for Jews because when the Christians are arguing with each other and saying the worst thing you could be is a Jew and everyone's saying, yeah, 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 what happens when they walk out the street and they see the Jews? So, so in terms of personality, so I just want you to keep that in mind, is that um, this is the point in history where the Jew as a category of Christian thought gets hardwired, really, into their religion. Meaning because they're arguing, trying to figure out within themselves what proper Christianity is, and because the Jew as a, as a category of thought is the ultimate beating stick. So then the Jew as a reality in the world becomes a living embodiment of everything which you are not and do not want to be. Right? And, and so, yeah, there's a dynamic, and by the way, it's a dynamic which, as I pointed out, is actually rooted back in the intra-Jewish argument, back in the Second Temple period when we were killing each other in the streets of Rome. So, the two personalities I would offer to you in thinking about this period of time and, and the critical pieces that they build into early Christian thought, first is Justin Martyr. Right? He's born around 100 of the Common Era, and he's what's known as an early Christian apologist. Um, you know, that he basically was defending Christianity on one hand against the Jews, and on the other hand against the pagans. He, of course, begins as a pagan, because, like I said, unless they happen to be Jewish, they, they all began as pagans. Um, he, and it's actually during the reign of Antoninus Pius, that Roman emperor who I said never existed, um, the uh, Antoninus Pius, that he arrives in Rome and actually starts his own school. Now, now Justin matters for our story because he was particularly antagonistic toward the Jews. He saw the Jews as a cursed people. And, and in, in a lot of the scholarly literature, he's looked to as the origin of Christian anti-Semitism. You know, that general dynamic that I just explained to you, people, if you ever want to pull a name out of the hat and say, who really started that? So many scholars will point to the writings of Justin Martyr, most of which don't survive, but, but the dialogue with Trifo is the, is the big text which, um, which does survive. Um, and there's a few things that, uh, that we need to know that he, he teaches. Number one, he was the first to argue that the Romans were not responsible for killing Jesus of Nazareth, but rather the Jews. Meaning, historically speaking, it makes no sense to blame the Jews. The Jews had lacked the power of capital punishment at that point, arguably for a couple hundred years. Right? Second of all, it's not so clear what Jesus of Nazareth could have done that would have deserved. Third of all, crucifixion is, is a Roman method of execution. Now, I want to point out, as we'll see if we ever make it into Spain, that the, the, um, the model of law of handing over people that you judge to death to what are called the secular authorities is a very old model of law. I mean, Jewish courts, particularly in Spain at certain times in history, had the right to judge capital cases. They didn't have the right to execute people. So you're thinking, well, what good does that do? The answer is, is then you have a deal with the secular authority. We judge this guy to be guilty of death. Here you go, king. Chop his head off. Right? Uh, and which, you can imagine, gets problematic very quickly. So it's not 100% clear that there wasn't some relationship. But the key is that Justin Martyr is the first one to begin to argue vehemently for deicide. That the Jews killed not just Jesus of Nazareth, but God. Um, 
So that, that's a big one. Um, the, at the same time, I want to clear up a misconception about early Christianity. One might think that if the Jews killed God and they're, they're, they're so bad, that our books are worthless. Right? That the, Jewish, the Hebrew Bible would be meaningless and that the Christian scriptures would be all that matters. It's not so clear, first of all, what form the Christian scriptures had in the first century of the Common Era, second century at this point. Right? It depends on which scholar you ask. But, it, but certainly there was more to it than the way they look now. But second of all, he's, he's, Justin is also famous for this statement that the truth of the prophets compels assent. He began as a philosopher. Right? Many of the pagans who made their way to Christianity had a number of stops. Some of them stopped in Judaism. Almost all of the early church fathers had a stopover in philosophy, which, remember, wasn't just a, a way of thinking. These were schools of thought, in particular Stoicism, was very attractive to Justin at a certain stage of life, but apparently was not compelling to him. Right? His experience of reading the prophets was compelling. And why do I keep reading that, repeating that word? Is because behind this whole discussion lies a discourse of authority. The church is trying to make an argument that they hold the keys to heaven. It's something very different than what the rabbis did. Right? Because the Mishnah, which at this point is more or less the same time period, what's the Mishnah say in Sanhedrin? Perka Chelek? Kol Yisrael Yeshlem Chelek Olam Haba. All of Am Yisrael has a portion of the world to come. It's true, then it goes on to a list of people who don't. We can get into that, right? But, um, but, but, but the point is, the, the operating assumption is that it has nothing to do with religious authority. And even those who, who end up getting characterized by the Mishnah and later sources as being out, so to speak, it has to do with their behavior and not their beliefs by and large. There are some, some sort of like the heretical beliefs. But the focus is, first of all, it's not rabbinic authority. A rabbi can put you in nidui, right, in excommunication. But where does that take place? Here, right? We're not going to sit next to you in shul. We might even not shop in your, in your store. It's not so clear what's going to happen to your soul. I guess that's between you and God. So The discourse of authority within Judaism is about law. The discourse of authority within Christianity begins on an existential basis. What happens if you die without having received communion? What happens if you don't accept the Savior? Right? They, they, so so when, when Justin Martyr says that the words of the prophets compel assent, what he's telling you is that properly read, this is an undeniable truth which has real consequence in your life. Now, that properly read piece is what leads me to why it matters for our story. Because again, if the words, the truth of the prophets compels assent, what's the average Jew assume you ought to become? A Jew. I mean, all the prophets were Jews. They, they were talking to Am Yisrael. Well, not Jews. All prophets were Israelites. And they were pro- talking to Am Yisrael. And, and they were all about the Torah. Right? Zichru Torah Moshe, says Malachi. So you can picture Justin Martyr saying, the, the words of the prophets compel assent. And some Jew in the background saying, then why do you eat pork, right? Um, so, so the challenge that he's got is how is it that the text is correct, but the meaning is misunderstood? What's that? Well, so, so we spoke at length last year about this power of allegory, which really has its roots as a, as a scriptural method amongst the Jews. Philo of Alexandria is the real so originator, but... There's, there's a little bit more than allegory going on through this, right? Um, this, because um, Justin is the 
originator of the notion of replacement theology. Right? He is the, the first, it's in the, in the dialogue with Trifle, I've got a great quote for here. For the true spiritual Israel are we who have been led to God through this crucified Christ. What does that mean? It means that the Jews have been carrying a text which they did not understand. That this text was misunderstood by the Jews and therefore misembodied through law and all the fleshly sacrifices and all this good stuff. Colonel Israel, as Paul calls it. Right? And it's, it's through this act of sacrifice, and don't miss the power, that, that the, the, the sacrificial relationship with God is a physical embodied relationship. We have the temple, we take a goat, we take its blood, you splash it on the altar, and something in your relationship shifts. So the Christians say, what? There was one last sacrifice. And since it so happens that that last sacrifice coincides more or less with the erasure of the ability of the Jews to do actual sacrifices, right? so now you get this whole argument going, which is that, hey, Jew, what are you going to do now? You're stuck. There's no question that, that um, from, a, from a sales standpoint, that, that, um, that Paul made the ultimate um, sort of, a, what's the word looking for, bottom, bottom, basement bottom bargain. Right, he, uh, you know, in, in removing the demands. Uh, at the same time, it's not true that the Jews weren't proselytizing at the time. The historical record tells us that, that, that the Jews were, were pretty interested in, in spreading our, our vision and that there was a, a significant body of people who were one foot in, one foot out, and that many of those people, the so-called God-fearers, um, were swept into Christianity. We're going to talk about where the an- anger, enmi- enmity, and hatred of the Jews came from. I want, to, I want to wait on that. But first, I'm trying to build the, the philosophical basis. Because remember, as much as I can paint Justin Martyr as, and he really, I think, in text, is justifiably seen as one of the origins of Christian anti-Semitism, most people never heard of him in his lifetime. And certainly most people were illiterate and they didn't read his books. And even the people who were illiterate and read his books, probably his philosophical prose, because the dialogue with Trifo is a, is a dialogue with a philosopher, was way over their head. So the question is, like, where does this widespread, like, why would there be riots to kill Jews in the 4th century? So that we need to think about, and we're going to come back to But for right now, I just want you to understand the nature of patristic Christianity and the role it plays in setting up what will become widespread notions in the Middle Ages. The idea that the Jews killed Jesus of Nazareth. My great-grandfather was dragged to death behind a wagon in Romania in the early 20th century on Easter Day for that. That's... That's 1,800 years later, awfully far away, right? And, and so, like, the, that doesn't just come out of nowhere. So the, the other piece I want you to understand, as I said, is this notion of replacement theology. That, that and it's perfectly consistent with Paul's notion of the spiritualization of the law, was that the Jews are replaced by the church in the covenant with God. You know, Jesus of Nazareth replaces the law, as you're pointing out, you no longer need to accept the obligation of the law. You need to accept Jesus as the Savior, and then you're in. Although the church doesn't do away with law altogether. It's a strange thing in Christianity. You know, today, like, the, the conservative Christian stance against homosexuality, which is often presented as, well, it's God's law, is that, well, but they eat pork. Right? Or, right? or in the Middle Ages, when the churches are very focused on 
on the, the prohibition of usury, right? What? Usury of, of lending on interest. But you're eating pork. Like, meaning I keep using that example because it's an obvious one. It's like, like, we, like we don't do that, but you're picking and choosing. So there are some questions of how certain elements of law maintain their presence within Christianity. But nevertheless, by and large, again, the church replaces the Jews. Carnal Israel is out. That's physically embodied in history. Spiritual Israel is in. That already has its origins in Paul's writings. But Justin is the first to really say that, that the true spiritual Israel is we have been led to God through their, their Savior. Right? So the church replaces the Jews. Jesus replaces the law. Right? And um, thereby, the Christians actually fulfill that which is given to the Jews. Because replacement theology is not just it's like, a, like a, uh, what's a game when you play with the, the shell game? Like you switch one for the other. Right? Replacement theology also implies that, that there, was, uh, there was a prefiguring of Christian theology within Jewish history. That all along the story was about the Christians. The Jews, according to J- Justin's version, just couldn't get it right because they were a backwards, you know, stupid, wicked people. And thank God we've all been saved. So Justin Martyr, like I said, is born around 100, and he establishes his school in Rome um, during the reign of Antinus, Antoninus Pius. So that's, let's call it the mid-2nd century. Um, the, so this is a critical piece in what will become medieval Christianity and the relationship between the Jews and Christians. It comes to us from Justin Martyr. There's, there's another piece, which is, which is um, parallel and complementary, which comes from his later contemporary Tertullian, right? Um, who basically says in his in analysis here, I'm looking at a bunch of um, the um, really awful statements that I have written down here, right? There's another problem in all this, which is that how do they want to preserve the texts without having to keep the Jews? You understand? If you look at a Christian Bible, the first two thirds of it are the Hebrew Bible. Granted, there are certain books like the Maccabees, etc., that they include that the Jews don't, but by and by and large, leaving aside who translated it and how they got it, meaning they took the Hebrew Bible and slapped something on the end of it and said, here is the Holy Word. Well, where did they get that first two-thirds from? From the Jews. So the problem is, is that what do we do about that? How, and so, so Justin says we've replaced them, and they were carrying this along all along, and therefore we've not only replaced them, but fulfilled it, I mean, historically speaking, the Jews were either spirituality 1.0 or simply actually a, a failure, and that therefore, as we're going to see, they deserve the suffering which is coming to them. Right? But what Tertullian adds is that he makes very specific that, that um, the Jewish texts understood properly, meaning spiritually, right, are actually a code for, for Jesus' whole life. This is what's called... Um, prefiguration. Right? It's a way of being beyond allegory. And this is why I said it's, allegory is only one of, their, one of their methods. Prefiguration means that this text is actually about the historical events that revolve around Jesus' Nazareth's life and Christian theology. That when Isaac you know, carried the wood to his own sacrifice on the mountain... This should sound familiar, right? Um, at what age, according to the sages? 33, 37, depends on like which, how you place the numbers, which is remarkably close to when the Christians say Jesus of Nazareth died. But what, they're, what they're saying is that that's what that story is actually about. 
And the Jews never understood it, because as Tertullian points out, they were incapable of understanding it because of the, their fleshly practices, right? Um, that the problem basically is not the God of the Jews or the text of the Jews. The problem is the actual Jewish people as a physical entity, which leads to a very simple and somewhat frightening conclusion. Is what's the solution then? You just get rid of the Jews. You keep their text. You've already taken their God. You just have to get rid of the Jews. And if that sounds like a bit of um, sort of anachronism projecting backwards, I just stopped short of saying the final solution, right? Um, I'm sorry, but it's not. It's the origin of much of what plays itself out later in, in modernity. It's true, there are many other factors for what happens in Europe 1,800 years down the line. But in my humble opinion, you cannot separate the origins, the philosophical origins of Christian anti-Semitism to what happens to the Jewish people in Europe in modernity. Right? The, and and, and the, the power here of the identification of the problem is the physical existence of the Jews. Notice, that why? Because they, they will persist in misreading these texts. Why? Because everybody knows that historically speaking, indeed they were written by Jews or Israelites. You understand? So what has to be done, which is again consistent with this strain of early patristic Christian thought, is the physical and the spiritual must be separated. Well, how do you separate body and soul? Right? It's, a, it's actually a fairly simple equation. Right? And, and the truth of the matter is, if that's where the discussion ended, it, it, well, I mean, aside from the Abishter, it might have gone poorly for the Jews. Um, so this is the sort of very early phase. It's the bridge between apostolic and, and patristic Christianity, between that era of people who actually were apostles and those who had come from the pagan world and were attempting to create right Christianity. And it might have just been sort of like street brawls and fights in the synagogue, because a lot of these people were meeting in synagogue and in church, right? If it weren't for a very important development in the Roman Empire. So before we go there, questions or, or comments, clarifications on, on these two examples of, of Justin Martyr and Tertullian and, and how they really sort of build what we know as anti-Semitism into a base level of, of Christian thought. Paul was, was absolutely Jewish. Almost all of them. I can't go too far back in the class, but what I'll tell you is this, is that if you're interested, you should go look up the Council of Jerusalem from the year 50 of the Common Era. This was when Paul first proposed um, removing the obligation. His focus was on circumcision but essentially moving the obligation of adherence to the law to pagan Christians, right? meaning he wasn't coming to release Jews from the law. Paul lived out his life, as far as we can tell, as an observant Jew. But his question was, in order to enter into this Christian covenant, did a pagan have to come in through Judaism? You understand the difference? And his argument was no, that that was a historical phenomenon that it was going to play itself out, but it was over. And that was the whole argument between he and Peter uh, at, uh, at the Council of Jerusalem. At this stage, I mean, on some level, the implication here is that it's a front. But remember, at this stage, the, the power discourse, I'm going to keep coming back to that, is, is, um, is low flame. Why? Because the Jews have been dispossessed of our land, although we still have some sort of cultural and communal integrity. The Christians are dispersed. Remember, Christianity begins as an end-of-days movement, really, within Judaism. 
right, who's certain that the end is near. And so therefore, there was no need to think about how are you going to build a movement. So when the world didn't end, so they had to do something. Right? Um, so it, this is where in the early patristic period where they're trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to be Christian if the world is still continuing? Since Christianity has a deep root, it's not just the end of days, it's a deep root in a world-rejecting theology. I want you to understand the implications. It's not just that they rejected um, spiritual, physical Israel. Is that when you reject the law, what you're saying is essentially that this world does not matter. God doesn't care what you do in this world. Your works do not matter. What matters is your faith. Right? And, and so therefore, this world becomes irrelevant at best. It's not like Paul said, giving birth is, is having children is giving fruit to death. Right? And, 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 and the misogyny in particular, which is contained in Paul's writings, many people believe, because of course, it, it, even today, but certainly in the ancient world, what was the ultimate expression of physical world in humanity? Woman. Woman in particular. Because how, do, how does man experience? He experiences desire, weakness, and then physical consequence. Bound to the world. Whereas this spiritualization, the monastic societies that grew at this period in Christianity, rapidly were an embodiment of a world-rejecting religion. The problem is, is that it was really hard sell for a broad religion. It's one thing they gave, they gave up the law, but, but a, a world-rejecting, like truly monastic life is a big ask. The monks didn't, didn't get off easy. Sometimes it's hard for us, because we think of these things as theological or philosophical questions, you have to remember, for the, especially for the apostles, but also for the pagans that joined in the patristic period, these were real historical events. Paul's walking down the road, going, at least according to the traditional account, to persecute the Jews who have joined the Jesus Club. And all of a sudden, he hears the thunder, sees the lightning, falls down by the side of the road, and a shining light comes down, coalesces into this figure of Jesus of Nazareth who says to him, You're wrong. He gets up, and what happens? Nothing will ever be the same. At the same time, he knows that the Torah is true. Why? Because Jesus said. It's the proof claim. It's the proof claim. Like, again, it's hard for us to relate to this. Even religious Jews, it's hard to relate to. You know, if it says in Isaiah that this is what's going to happen, then that's what's going to happen. And as we'll get to, God willing, before we're done here, that, that this will become the critical question, is that who owns the meaning of the text? But nobody's arguing that the text is irrelevant. And, and, and the only sort of answer I can give to your question, which is a good one, is that we have to get inside the mindset of late antiquity, where prophecy is still a real phenomenon, even though it's not necessarily given the authority it once was. But remember, like Jesus of Nazareth pops up and starts talking in the name of God, and lots of people start listening, you know? And then, they, you know, you got the apostles writing these books that are seen to be sacred. But that's what in our tradition is called the prophetic tradition. He's interpreting. And that's the next best thing. Notice, Justin Martyr is actually intellectually in the same vein as the Mishnah and the Midrash. I didn't put the Midrash. Right? The Midrash is not, I'm not telling what God thinks. I'm telling you what the text says about what God thinks. You see? It's the same intellectual process. All the Christians agree that Christianity emerges out of Judaism. None of them cuts the roots and, say, and says they're an entirely new thing. Why? Because their whole point is fighting paganism. They, they say, yes, the Jews, as awful and wicked and evil and physical and rotten and nasty that they are, they got one thing right. This is, there's a real God. Islam will pick up the same thing with some very different emphases. We will get to Islam in 
Do the Christians kill pagans? Uh, well, let's, we have to wait until that was where I was going with this whole discourse of authority. Because, because remember, right now, bad business to start killing pagans. Pagans are in charge. They didn't have the political power, you know. I want, I want to set the stage before we get talking to the hate. Because uh, we've got to ask two questions. Where does, where does the hatred of the Jews come from? And then where's just the general exclusive posture of Christianity? By the way, the answer to where the hate comes from, everyone knows. I'm sorry to say it. It's, it's, it's a, it is a human trait that we hate other. And it takes a tremendous effort to overcome that. And i got news for you. One of the reasons that Christianity spreads to this day the way that it does is because they fight that very aspect in humanity. And, and we ought to learn from it. Christianity fights that particular aspect within humanity which wants to hate other, but it does it in a very strange way that we'll speak about. At this point, Christians and Jews agree that the voice of God has retreated. And what we're left with is text. right? And, and so the Jews are pursuing what I've called the halachic project, although the midrashic project goes together with it. Law without narrative is meaningless. right? Because if I tell you to do something, the first thing you're going to do if you're a Jew is ask me why. right? And, and it's got to fit into some story, and we're going to get to that. right? The Christians are, are more into a theological process of trying to figure out, like, how do we make the jump from, from Greek philosophy and, and certain pagan elements? By the way, the, the idea of God as man, flesh, hardly unique in, to the Christian. It's one of the great models of pagan culture globally. Right? The idea of, of the imminent, the transcendent in the imminent. Right? Um, also, without going too far for it, what's the primary act that the Christian church puts forward as a participation in the godhood of Jesus of Nazareth? Ritual, sac ritual cannibalism. Right? Transubstantiation. I say that without any... I'm not saying to be facetious, and I'm not saying to be critical, and, and I, I really am trying to be very careful with other people's beliefs, but realize that, that, that if you are a, are a practicing Catholic who believes in the doctrine of transubstantiation, that means that you believe you are eating the body and blood of God-man. Right? And, and, and that concept of, of, of physically imbibing one's, one's God in order to participate in a wholeness of body it has a lot of parallels in Jewish thought. Not with the physical, but where is the place which all Jews participate in one body that has a unique relationship to God? It's called Knesset Yisrael. Right? The spiritual sum total of Am Yisrael, which has a special relationship to God, which in many ways mediates the relationship of the individual Jew. In the same way that the Torah, right? and, and you will see this in the Christian discussion of what's called the Logos, the power of word, as a means of creation, there's a lot of parallels to the nature of wisdom and law. Reshit Darko says in Mishlah that God looked into the Torah and created the world, Midrashim that people are familiar with. So just pointing out that, and, and, and where to draw the line between Christian and Jew at this point is far from clear, except for the guys duking it out in the streets. But the people in the Beit Midrash and the people in the synagogue and in the church, it's far from clear. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to ask to hold the question because I, I really want to actually give some wholeness to, to the last 20 minutes here. Um, okay, so this may have remained basically a vehement philosophical argument if it weren't for particular developments within the Roman Empire, right? Because once 
in the late third century, Rome manages to sort of like buck up and pull itself together. The basic structure is that the notion of Eastern Western Empire continues. There's what's known as a, uh, an Augustus and a Caesar in each one. It doesn't really matter to us so much what the political structure of rule was. But what does matter is that along in the, the beginning of the fourth century, along comes Constantine. Well, actually, before we get there, I do want to point out is that right at the beginning of the third century, along comes Diocletian. Right? We talked about Diocletian, who was the great persecutor of the Christians, right? and that he not only is a persecutor of the Christians, he's also a persecutor of the philosophers, because he understood that the two, Diocletian, D-I-O-C-L-E-T-I-I-N, T-I-A-N, um, that he's the one in most sort of popular imagination when you picture Christians getting thrown to the lions, it was him, right? It might have been earlier, but when Domitian, but... but um, that, that in particular is a period which is called the Great Persecution in the year 302 when he drives the philosophers out of Rome and, and, and he really begins to like actively seek out and kill Christians. And one of the questions is why? Like, like pagans, remember, are intrinsically more pluralistic than monotheists. Right, as soon as you open the door for multiple gods, we might buck up for whose god is bigger, but the idea that you can't have your god is like, well, why not? Right? Um, it's, it's in, and there is a whole historiography uh, arguing that the prophets of Israel are the origins of religious intolerance. I'll let you chew on that. For, for, no, listen. Right? Uh, it's, it's worth thinking about the, that, that question of, of how, um, how intolerance and belief relate to each other. But the key is, is that in, in a, an astounding turn of events, Diocletian has this great persecution in the year 302. Um, the empire is rocked by another set of civil wars, out of which emerges the leadership of Constantine. Constantine known as Constantine the Great. Um, and the turning point in his record is recorded by the Christian church historian, I guess there wouldn't be another type of church historian, Eusebius. Eusebius records, if I'm not mistaken, in the, in much later in the 4th century, at the, about the Battle of Milvian Bridge which is that in, in Constantine's efforts to consolidate the entire empire under his rule, he has to take Rome. Now, we all think of Rome as the heart and soul of the empire, but at this point it was not. Right? It was an important city, but it was not particularly the heart and soul. But Milvian Bridge was one of the entrances into Rome. And, and the way that Eusebius reports the story, he says that the night before the battle, Constantine had a vision sent, you know, according to the church historian, by the Christian god, which promised him victory if the sign of, of the, the Cairo, which in Greek are the first two names, first two letters of, of Jesus' name, right, were painted on his soldiers' shields. And so the story goes that he did such a thing, um, and that they were victorious, and that from this point forward, Constantine converts to Christianity. Now, that's a nice story, but there's some deep problems with it. First of all, the Arch of Constantine that commemorates his victory, shows no Christian symbolism. It shows the pagan gods as the source of his victory, which is no way definitive of undermining the story because that's just PR, and Christianity was not exactly a beloved religion at this point in the empire. Um, at the same time, and by the way, his later iconography, like his pictures, show up with him, Sol Invectus, the, the, the Roman sun god, is very big in his pantheon. He's often shown as emperor with a halo behind him, which the halo is the original sign of the Sol Invectus and only later gets adopted by Christianity as one of their images. Um, 
But what really matters, practically speaking, is that the year after his victory and his consolidation of his rule over the empire, is he issues the Edict of Milan, which is the first time Christianity is given the status of a protected religion within the Roman Empire, something which Judaism has enjoyed for centuries. I mean, it hasn't always been good to be a Jew in the Roman Empire, but it's been legal. Now, why does that matter? Because if you get drafted into the legions and you refuse to sacrifice to the standard before you go into war, you're, you, you, you might pay with your life. But if you're a Jew, they say, oh, you don't have to do that. Or if you're a public official who's obligated to not only pay for but participate in certain public sacrifices, you could end up paying with your life if you refuse. But if you're a Jew, no, you can do that because that's your status. Christians have been dying in droves because of their refusal to participate with this. And in a stroke of a pen, Constantine erases that problem. And this is the beginning of the, of the progress of the Christian religion adopting the Roman Empire. Now, I want you to think of it that way as opposed to the way it's normally said. Normally you say that the Roman Empire adopted the Christian religion, which is to some degree probably true as well. There are all kinds of historical theories about the power of religion to unite a divided empire, um, the fading appeal of classic Roman culture, the inadequacy of philosophy to motivate people. Right? Christianity offered a lot. But at the end of the day, I think Christianity had a bigger problem than, than the Roman Empire. Was that Christianity had no body. And not only did they have no body, they, they had a world-rejecting posture which militated against them ever developing one of their own. They weren't going to develop a body of law like Judaism had, which would allow people to embody themselves in communities. They were, they were riven by these philosophical arguments, which on one hand produced sort of these brilliant individuals, like them or hate them, they were quite powerful in their day, right? but left this little church and that little church very little to unite them. Right? In a, in, in basically, in the space of about less than a century, less than a century, because by 380, the Christianity will be the official religion of the Roman Empire. So within about 70 years, Christianity has infused its soul into the body of the Roman Empire. Right? But the critical turning point in this happens 12 years after the Edict of Milan, which is the um, Nicene Council in 325. So the Nicene Council was the first ever ecumenical council, right? Today we use ecumenical meaning basically interfaith often. Its, uh, its original meaning, however, was, was, in, was bringing bishops of various churches together to agree on Christian doctrine, right? Um, and indeed, this was the first time anything had, such a thing had happened on the sort of scale of all of Christendom. And they were called together under the emperor's authority. And that really is what's going to define the results. Constantine wanted a clear statement of what Christianity was, and it's likely he intended from the beginning to use imperial power to enforce it on the world. Right? It, was that because he was a fanatic Christian who wanted to know his God, or he was a pragmatic politician who, who, who wanted to get things straight? We will never know. You can go and read the historians. You'll find some in one camp and some in others. And, you know, even Christians split. Not every Christian is so sure that Constantine was a saint. There are many Christians out there who actually think that the Nicene Council was the worst thing that ever happened to Christianity. And there's, a whole, there's a whole world of discussion. But for our purposes, for the Jewish story, Lamasa, as we say as Jews, right, what happened was that indeed the Nicene Creed was, was given birth at the Nicene Council, which created orthodoxy within Christianity, which was, ultimately became Catholic, right? Now, why does that matter? Because of that equation I told you, is that, that as long as 
heterodoxy exists, then there's always a measure of tolerance and discourse. As soon as heterodoxy becomes orthodoxy, heresy is born. There's very little room for heresy in a world of heterodoxy. There's always somebody on the margin that you're going to say is outside the conversation, but it's a thin margin. As soon as you have orthodoxy, what used to be heterodoxy becomes heresy. And what do you do to heretics? Yeah, you don't talk to them, especially not if you have the power of the emperor behind you. And so what comes out of Nicaea is, is not just sort of like heated debates and, and uh, you know, regional rivalries, etc. What comes out of it is the longest period of imperially sponsored anti-Christian persecution against wrong-believing Christians. Right? Meaning, once you have the Nicene Creed, the particular heresy which becomes most popular was, was known as the Arian heresy. It was a debate about the nature of, of the relationship between God and Jesus of Nazareth. The, the theology is not so critical to us now. Um, but what does matter is that the Arians, who were led by Bishop Arius, right, their religion or version of Christianity doesn't go away. You know where it ends up jumping to? To the German tribes of the Western Roman Empire. Which means that the idea that Christianity would unite the empire is, is, a, is a non-starter from the beginning. Nevertheless, Constantine uses imperial power to essentially crush theological opposition. Right? It's, it's not all in one fell swoop. You're talking about generations of work. Furthermore, there is one little sort of blip in the Christianization of the Roman Empire. But Constantine, like every emperor, doesn't live forever. He does, however, one last very important thing which Constantine does is he shifts the capital of the Roman Empire to where? Constantinople, right? That's a good guess, right? He begins construction around the year 324, more or less at the same time that the Nicene Council is happening, and finishes it. The dedication is in the year 330, right? This will become significant because the birth of Nicene Christianity and, and the shift of the capital of the Roman Empire to Constantinople coming together will create what we know as the Byzantine world. Again, remember, we're setting the stage for the Middle Age. Right? If you don't know what the Byzantine world is, it's fine. We'll get to explain it. But you should understand, it's here in the, the early 4th century that those two things come together. The construction of a new city and the consolidation of what amounts to, a, if not a new religion, a clear, a new version of the religion. Yeah, there's all kinds of questions of why he did it. Well, the, the power base of, of, of um, Greek-speaking Christianity wasn't there. The, financially, the, the, the opportunities in trade, being on the bridge of the Black Sea and the Mediterranean are, are um, rich. Some people just like to start new and building the power. I mean, think of Washington, D.C., if you're an American, and, and how like, the American empire, in many ways, begins with the construction of Washington, D.C. The progress between Constantine and, and what's known as the Edict of Thessalonica which in 380 makes Christianity the exclusive religion of the Roman Empire. Remember, that's from 313 to 380. That's, 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 you know, 67 years from being a persecuted minority to being the ruling majority. There is one little pagan blip in the middle. I'm not going to go into Justin. I think that Julian, sorry, the Julian the Apostate is just going to confuse you. Um, one second, and then I'll, and I'll, then I'll give the, the space for the last couple of questions. Because, gosh, where does the time go? It's good that you warned me before. Um, the, the, so where does this end with the Jews? Is it good news for the Jews? 
But now that we have Christianity moving from like warring bishoprics and their own internal discourse into um, a, a, an official institution, well, at first it looks like it's really bad news um, in, in the sense that the, in the fourth century, the Archbishop of Constantinople is John Chrysostom. And he has a series of eight um, sermons, which are second only perhaps to Justin Martyr in their viciously anti-Jewish text. And in particular, you know what's bothering him? All the Christians who are going to shul on Saturday and showing up in church on Sunday. Right? He is one of the great documents for the fact that the distinction between Christian and Jew, even in the fourth century, had not yet become complete. Um, therefore, he goes out of his way, and I'm not going to drag you through these really wonderful quotes I have here about the evil devil of the Jews, but um, he goes out of his way to demonstrate basically the, the fact that the Jews are intrinsically evil. And therefore, he follows in the footsteps of Justin Martyr and Tertullian with the natural conclusion is that what do you do with the devil? You drive him out. John Chrysostom. C-H-R-Y-S-O-S-T-O-M. He was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the 4th century. Um, however, it, it might have ended up, actually, with an attempt at massive slaughter, leaving aside, of course, the, the eternal promise we have from Lerbonus Olam, if it weren't for a very important shift of thought that happened in North Africa in the late 4th, early 5th century, which is, the, which is Augustine of Hippo. And in the last few minutes, um, we will come back to Augustine next week, but in the last few minutes, I just want to show you that there is a, another relationship which gets established between the Jews and the Christians, which really sets the stage for the Middle Ages. Meaning, the, the Chrysostom, Justin Martyr, Tertullian sense that the Jews must be eliminated doesn't go away. It will lurk in the background and will come out into the foreground periodically. But it, it never, it's not a sustainable relationship, as we saw with the ultimate conclusion in Europe. It's like it, you cannot live together, and the Christians need the Jews. And this is what Augustine realizes. So Augustine, first of all, believes, unlike you know, Justin Martin and Tertullian, that the Jews actually did the right thing in keeping the Torah. They did the right thing in keeping the Torah, right? That, because it was only through that, through this acting out the Torah in flesh in historical time, right, that they would ever be able to bring about his Savior. Because remember, he's focused on the fact that his Savior is in flesh in historical time. So he says, says that, that what Jesus of Nazareth was was the conclusion of the physical process of the Jews. Therefore, the Jews weren't some evil people who couldn't understand their scripture. They were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. They've been replaced. And he's, not, he's not a Jew lover, because remember, it's still in the 4th century. You can start being a Jew lover, they'll kick you out of the church, right, burn your house down. But, um, but nevertheless, it's a very different shift. And furthermore, Augustine is, is marveled by a one very important thing, which is that the Jews just don't go away. And, and at this point, the Romans have been trying for an awfully long time. And he's astounded by this capacity of the Jews to survive even in their scattered state. And furthermore, not to give up on the law. Right? Not to give up on the law. And so therefore, and we'll come back to Constantine because I have two minutes and I want to I want to just give you this, and then I'll let the couple people that I asked to wait throw, throw their comments in, is that what, what emerges out of Constantine, uh, sorry, Augustine's thought is what's known as the doctrine of the suffering witness. That, that Augustine, you know, it says in Psalms, slay them not, lest my people forget. Scatter them with your might. 
Augustine, see, he sees the problem of the Christian church. On the one hand, the Christians have replaced the Jews, therefore we should have disappeared. On the other hand, the Christians need the Jews, because what's, and this goes back to your question, what is the ultimate proof of the Christian salvation? The Hebrew Bible. What's the proof that the Hebrew Bible is actually true and real? The Jews. So the church needs the Jews. And so what he says is that the Jews are meant to be kept alive and scattered throughout the world for two reasons. To testify to the truth of their scripture, which ultimately he believes testifies to the truth of his God, and in their lowly state to show the consequences of the rejection of salvation. Right? And it's these two pieces together which will lay the groundwork for the role that the Jew plays in the Middle Ages. Because as we'll speak about as we go forward, it was almost never the official organs of the church and the feudal state that persecuted the Jews. Yeah, this church man or that king or lord, yes. They were not, however, as institutions the real threat. It was the mob that was the threat. And the Jew will move closer to these power bases when they can in order to be protected because Augustine has pointed out in a lowly degraded state but that they should survive until the end by his eschatology is of course that the Jews in the end will see the light and, and convert. It's not, he's not a lover of the Jews. Don't, don't misunderstand me. And what I'm pointing out is that that shift is what created a model in which that Jews could be tolerated within Christian society as opposed to some sense that they needed to be eliminated. However, the other element of the vehement philosophical hatred doesn't go away. And I still really haven't addressed the real question you guys asked, which is where does the hatred come from? So we've got a bunch of sort of boxes open. We will come back to Christianity and what's known as the narrative battle, right? With we've engaged in for more than a thousand years when we pick up next week. If you like that live sound, I encourage you to join me for Jewish Story Live. Picking up once again, August 28th. It'll be every Sunday night, 1 to 2 Eastern Standard, 8 to 9 in Israel. We're going to pick up with the book of Daniel and understand the underpinnings of half of human society. You can find the details, jewishstory.co. Scroll down until you see Access Jewish Story Live. Or you can look up in the upper right-hand corner because Season 6 is coming. And if you want to be a patron, click on that button to give a little bit of per-podcast support. Send me an email for details of both the above, robmikeboyer.gmail.com. Either way, I hope to see you there. I'm Rob Mike Boyer, and this is The Jewish Story.